Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your hosts. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. And today's episode is what the fuck shakespeare and we seriously shakespeare what the fuck like seriously we will be talking about all of those things in shakespeare that make us go what the fuck are you thinking will some of them are really gross some of them are disturbing some of them are puzzling and some of them are just downright wrong yes inexplicable and insane um so where would we like to start owen uh i don't know should we start with gross things we can start with some gross. It's things. a little bit, in some ways, a little bit of an addendum to our first episode, Filthy Shakespeare, in which we talk mostly about sex references or like dirty, smutty references to, you know, dick jokes and right. you know, all that kind of thing. Much ado about nothing, meaning much ado about pussy. But now we're talking more in the scatological realm. Right. Like Garoti. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shakespeare was not above a good fart joke. Oh, for my instance. God. His audience loved it. Now, I must say he comes from a fine tradition in English literature. And by no means are we implying that he was as gross as, say, Chaucer, who liked to write about how every monk that had ever lived in history was in hell and living in the devil's asshole. That's actually true. And you can look it up in the Canterbury Tales. Yes. What Chaucer said, not necessarily that every monk is living in the devil's asshole. Let's (laughs) clarify that. (laughs) Do you want to start us off with some fart jokes, though? Absolutely. Well, let, let me start by saying there's actually a fart joke in, of all plays, Hamlet. We think we don't think of Hamlet as a as a place. We think of Hamlet as very highbrow and one of his more refined plays. Um, but he was not shy, Shakespeare, about making obviously about making sexual humor. But is there evidence of a fart joke in Hamlet? Absolutely. Here's the exchange: when the players are arriving, Polonius and Hamlet have the following uh, the following dialogue. Polonius says, "The actors are come hither, my lord." Hamlet says, "His only reply is buzz, buzz." And Polonius says, upon mine honor, and Hamlet interrupts him by saying, then came came each actor on his ass. Now, it is true, of course, ass refers to donkey, but it is close to arse, which is how Shakespeare would have said ass, our our version of ass in terms of buttocks. And buzz, buzz is is Elizabethan for a raspberry sound or... Oh, it would be extremely effective to play that line that way as a perfect expression of Hamlet's contempt for Polonius. And Hamlet's next line, no matter what, it's a pun, but it's blatantly anal and can only support this reading, right? right. So that that is a fart joke that actually resides in that most serious of plays, or that, so we think, Hamlet. Shakespeare had a thing about assholes, didn't he? He certainly did. He did. So I want to talk about, um, <laughs> in all, <laughs> and we're like five years old, you guys, um, in All's Well That Ends Well. Now, that's already a pretty odd play. You know, It's a, a very lot, odd play. Yeah, with a lot of people tricking each other into sex, which is never a good idea, you know. Um, but for a comedy about unrequited love, for the most part, it's a little weird that Shakespeare would be so specific about the king's ailment. Yeah, so, so so just to be to so the basic plot scenario of this is that the king of France is dying 
And the Helena, who is the daughter of a doctor, ha, thinks she can cure him. But she, what she wants is she wants to marry Bertram, who was in, in love with her. So she goes to the King of France and she says, I can cure you, even though all of your doctors say you're incurable. But if I do, you have to give me whatever I want. And what I want is the husband of my choosing. And the king, after some persuading, says, OK. But to Lisa Ann's point... What the king is dying of is an anal fistula. Now, for those of you that don't know, and I really must tell you what this is, an anal fistula is an infected tunnel that connects an abscess, an infected cavity in the anus, to an opening on the skin around the anus, which is the muscular opening at the end of the digestive tract. Now, the anus is the external opening through which feces are expelled from the body. You probably know this, but just checking. Now, Inside, just inside the anus, are uh, a number of small anal glands, and they make mucus. Now, occasionally, these glands get clogged and can become infected, leading to an abscess, and about half of these abscesses may develop into a fistula. Symptoms include pain, swelling, discharge of blood, or pus from the anus, and surgery is usually needed to treat an anal fistula which is what Helena does because her dad was a doctor and for whatever reason passed on these pearls of wisdom about how to operate on an anal fistula. Yeah, in the in the play, she based she only says that she has a miracle cure, essentially. She doesn't actually say that it's surgery, but what else could it be? It's well, an anal I mean, fucking fistula. Yeah, I mean, she literally says, you know, my father left me some prescriptions of rare and proved effects. Amongst the rest, there is a remedy approved set down to cure the desperate languishings whereof the king is rendered lost. Mm. A.K.A. horribly invasive surgery. That's right. But you <laughs> know what? She cures him and she gets her husband. Yeah. After trick, as, as you say, after tricking him into having sex with her since he doesn't want to. That's right. It's a very strange play. It's a very strange play. Uh, what next? Well, I'm not done with farting. Oh, please. Please oh, go God. on. There's so much farting in Shakespeare, I'm telling you. In Othello, another play not noted for its comedy. <laughs> there is a there is a, a fart joke from the clown who, who may be the unfunniest clown in, in all of Shakespeare. I think absolutely the unfunniest clown. And always cut. Have you ever seen a production of Othello in which the clown showed up? No, we cut it for our Shakespeare Sunday reading. I mean, for fuck's sake, the goddamn thing is like three hours and 45 minutes long. We can lose the clown, right? We don't How fucking need the clown. However, however, in Othello, late in the play, musicians are performing when a clown interrupts them and says, are these, I pray you, wind instruments? And the first musician says, I, Mary, are they, sir? And the clown replies, oh, thereby hangs a tail. Whereby hangs a tail, sir? And the clown responds, Mary, sir, by many a wind instrument that I know. The tale that the clown is speaking of is an asshole. Yep. The clown means that the asshole is a wind instrument and the fart is the music it plays. I know it's not hilarious. Like I said, the clown is always cut, but it is definitely a fart joke in motherfucking Othello. <laughs> well, you know, Iago's kind of an asshole, so there you go. That is true. That is true. But I don't, I, I don't recall him farting. No, I'm sure you have many more fart jokes, too, don't you, Owen? Oh, oh, yes. Yes, I do. In fact, you could almost say, and I actually was in a production of the Comedy of Errors in which this reference turned into a farting contest. <laughs> 
one of the most famous references of, or fart references in, is in Shakespeare is from the Comedy of Errors. When uh, Dromeo, I think it's of Ephesus, says, a man may break a word with you, sir, and words are but wind. I break it in your face, so he break it not behind. In other words, it's better have, to have somebody break their word to you than fart in your face. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I can agree with that, actually. Now, the, the truth is the fart references fit a little bit better in a play like Comedy of Errors than Hamlet or Othello. <laughs> but good old Will tries to get him in there. Right. Um, it, it's it, it, There's no fart joke actually in King Lear, but it is true that King Lear famously does say blow winds and crack your cheeks. That's which true. Sounds a little like a fart. You it have to totally admit. It totally does. And I mean, we'll get to King Lear in a minute, but there's lots of reasons he could be making fart jokes, you know. For um, sure. But I want to I, I want to step away from here for a moment. There's just a couple of moments in Shakespeare that I'm really like, what I, I, I don't. What the fuck, Will? I don't get it. One of them is in As You Like It. Uh, you know, one minute everybody's wandering around the forests of France in a, you know, this comedy about cross-dressing. And the next minute somebody is attacked by a lioness. Why is there a lioness in the forests of France? Why is there a lioness in the forest of in the forest of Arden in France? I don't What is get it doing it. there? No, but you know, that's kind of on the it's, same. It's gotta level. be one of those plot lions. <laughs> oh my God, that hurt. That was so bad. Um, but that kind of goes with the same thing in Winter's Tale, which is that that character exits and then exits pursued by a bear. Famously, yes. What is a bear doing in Bohemia? Right. Where, where why? Oh, and then we get a gruesome description of the bear eating uh, Antigonus alive. That's right. What was that about? What the fuck, Shakespeare? I don't get it. I don't need it. Well, um, speaking of what the fuck moments and speaking of animals and strange things that happens, let, let us talk about a moment in the Scottish play. And let me take a moment to say, you, you may remember longtime listeners of our show that Lisa Ann and I have a little bit of a dispute about the superstition surrounding that particular play. Um, I had been sort of talked down off the ledge, as many of you may know, and had started to refer to it by its name. Oh, God. But, but recently, <laughs> some of you may have seen our production on YouTube. We went live a couple of weeks ago with our production of the Scottish play. And even though it was very successful, so many technical things went wrong. So many technical things went you wrong. You guys, seriously, the first we did it, we did two performances. The first performance, it took us about 15 minutes to connect to a live stream on YouTube. And, you know, it, it went fine, but that was a little stressful. But that night, Owen and I were up until 1230 in the morning, double checking all of our mm -hmm. connections, going through it four or five times to make sure the next day would go smoothly. And everything was working perfectly. And the next day, everything tanked. Mm -hmm. Everything tanked. We couldn't connect to the live stream. We had to some we had a ton of people who were waiting to see it. We had to get them an invitation to, into the actual Zoom room where we were doing the show. Somehow we managed to do it. But and on, then three of us lost power during the performance. We had already lost our banquo, our dear friend Patrick Lawler. 
who was replaced by our other dear friend, Keith Howard. But Patrick lives in Austin, Texas. And this is a couple of weeks ago. You may remember there was a horrible power outage there. And then during the performance, Lisa Ann lost power in Pittsburgh and Chonis Chapman, another dear friend of ours playing the third witch, lost power in upper Manhattan. On a beautiful sunny day. The point of all of this is to say my my adherence to the superstition is back, y'all. Well, I'm I'm not completely convinced, but I'm definitely heading over towards Owen's side. <laughs> At, anyway, that's our little pause as to say. But in terms of what the fuck moments in the Scottish play, <clears throat> there is a moment where, and I'm gonna have to quote it, unfortunately. So I'll take the curse off in a minute. Things are, this is the night after Duncan, or the morning after Duncan's murder. And uh, Ross, one of the Thanes, is reporting to an old man, and he says, And Duncan's horses, a thing most strange and certain, beauteous and swift, the minions of their race, turned wild in nature, broke their stalls, flung out, contending against obedience as they would make war with mankind. And the old man, in a totally wait what moment, says, Tis said they eat each other. And Ross replies, they did so to the amazement of mine eyes that looked upon it. So the king's horses just start becoming cannibals out of nowhere. I mean, what yeah, the that's fuck? That's fucking weird, you guys. That's fucking now, Grant, I mean, I guess it's meant that nature is rebelling and the universe is turning upside down because of the horrible murder that is. Yeah, between. yeah. But it's but it's pretty weird. Yeah. That is pretty weird. Um, here's an interesting what the fuck moment that Owen and I were discussing earlier. Um, you know, I, as a, a, a woman of the 21st century, take a little bit of umbrage to the fact that Helena in A Midsummer Night's Dream, who is following Demetrius, who is in love with him and wants him to love her and to be with her and to take her in any way that she can, says to him, oh my God. And even for that, do I love you the more? I am your spaniel. And Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me, but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. Only give me leave, unworthy as I am to follow you. What worser place can I beg in your love, and yet a place of high respect with me, than to be used as you use your dog? Really, Shakespeare? Come on. But what's worse, as Owen pointed out, is what follows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, I, I mean, it's hard. It's a it's a terrible and misogynistic moment for sure. But at least emotionally, we can sort of understand where Helena is. I mean, she's desperately in love and she'll do anything to be with this guy. It's really unfortunate the way it's expressed. But it's not as horrible as what Demetrius next does, which is basically he threatens to rape her if she doesn't leave him alone. Yes, but that happens a lot in Shakespeare, doesn't it? What about the ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona? Okay, well, we need to talk about the ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona, which, P.S., not Shakespeare's finest moment, let's Definite, be honest. Definitely one of the problem plays. But I the think. ending, this is totally a what the fuck. The ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona is one of the most bizarre and disturbing endings that I personally have ever read. Okay, so here's the situation. The two gentlemen are Proteus and Valentine, right? So after Valentine puts a stop to Proteus's attempt to rape Sylvia, Valentine does something really kind of unbelievable. He yells at Proteus for being a lousy friend, but says nothing about Proteus's violation of Sylvia. Proteus, Proteus apologizes. Immediately. And then in a gesture, quote unquote, of goodwill, Valentine says, all that was mine in Sylvia, I give thee. What the fuck? He gives 
Proteus, the woman that Proteus was just about to rape. Yeah, it's really, really bad. I, I think I, Anne Barton, a critic, she put it really well. She says the play's resolution is achieved through a movement of plot so brusque, so destructive of the relationships of the characters as they have been developed, that generations of commentators have tried to absolve Shakespeare from Valentine's quote-unquote over-generous gift of his lady Sylvia to his friend Proteus, the man who had been doing his best to rape her only a moment before. Oh what? my God. The actual fuck. What the actual fuck? And and shall shall we move on to another what the actual fuck moment in King Lear? Cornwall and Regan are upset with Gloucester, so they proceed to <laughs> gouge Gloucester's eye out in Gloucester's house. Now, right, right. It's Goneril's idea. You got to give it up for Goneril. She had the idea. That's right. That's what I was going to say. Cornwall may not have even gone this far if Goneril and Regan weren't standing on the sidelines just egging him on like a couple of deranged cheerleaders. Regan says, hang him instantly. Goneril says, pluck out his eyes. And then Cornwall takes one, but that's not enough for Regan. So she says, one side will mock another. T'other one, too. What the fuck? And you know Cornwall is enjoying it because as he gouges out that second eye, one of my favorite lines in all of Shakespeare's uttered is he says, out vile jelly, where is thy luster now? (laughs) And maybe the coldest thing that has ever been said ever, not to Shakespeare, but anywhere, is after uh, after Gloucester is blinded and is going to flee to Dover, Regan says, cast him out at gates and let him smell his way to Dover. I have to say it, it. It's super fun saying that line. Oh my god, <laughs> that is a cold-hearted bitch. That is a cold-hearted bitch. And the thing is, that you 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 don't really see it coming with these bitches. You know, you know they lie to their dad at the beginning, but this is a whole nother platform. Well, and then you know they, they how how they die is not not so not so cool. Yeah. Well, you know, Goneril poisons Regan, and then. Goneril kills, kills herself. herself so yeah there you go <laughs> yeah richly deserved that's right i want to talk about titus andronicus but i'll bet you have some more fart jokes to pass on oh god the fart jokes they just they never stop you know they never stop so there's actually a lengthy fart joke it, it takes a while to get there but in um in henry the fourth part one glenn owen glendower and hotspur are talking and uh, the, 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 the two, they're rebelling against the king. And the, the, the two rebel leaders, um, Owen Glendower and Harry Hotspur. And in this exchange, Glendower is claiming to be a mighty wizard whose birth was a great big deal. And the exchange goes like this. Glendower says, I say the earth did shake when I was born. The heavens were all on fire. The earth did tremble. Hotspur takes a while to get there. He says, oh, then the earth shook to see the heavens on fire and not in fear of your nativity. Disease of nature oftentimes breaks forth in strange eruptions. Oft the teeming earth is, is with a kind of colic pinched and vexed by in the imprisoning of unruly wind within her womb, which for enlargement striving shakes the old beldam earth and topples down steeples and moss-grown towers. At your birth, our grandma earth, having this distemperature in passion shook. So that's a really roundabout way of saying the earth farted when you were born. <laughs> it's a lot for a teeny tiny joke, I think. It is. It's so a, what it's the ki- fuck, Well, it's, it's kind of a sick burn, but it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, yeah. 
So um, we've talked about Titus Andronicus before, but you know what, guys? There's just so much to talk about that I think we should revisit it. I mean, that whole play is one long what the fuck. Yeah, I mean, you know, heads are severed, hands are severed, tongues are severed, two dudes are killed, they're baked into a pie, all of this kind of stuff. But let's start. Your mom eats them. That's right. But let's start. I mean, actually, if you're looking for a Shakespeare play that's kind of like a bizarre mashup of Roman history and Sweeney Todd, this is the one for you. Um, But let's start with Lavinia getting gang raped and mutilated, right? So in the second act, Tamara surprises Titus's daughter Lavinia and her fiance Bassianus in the forest. Tamara has her sons kill Bassianus and then throw him in a pit. Then they drag Lavinia off stage to violently rape her. And that's when the mutilation starts. Okay, so wait. Tamara just wants to kill Bassianus to get back at Titus. And she doesn't really have anything against Lavinia. But I mean, what the fuck? She's a professed virgin. So Tamara figures, as long as she's around, why don't I encourage my sons to gang rape and mutilate her? And it's her boyfriend, Aaron the Moor, that discovers them arguing about which of them is going to marry Lavinia. That's right. And Aaron basically says, why are you arguing about marrying her? Why don't you both just rape her? That's right. I mean, what the fuck? It's early in the day, right? So so Lavinia says to Tamara when this is all happening, oh, keep me from their worse than killing lust and tumble me into some loathsome pit where never man's eye may behold my body. Do this and be a charitable murderer. And Tamara replies, so should I rob my sweet sons of their fee? No, let them satisfy their lust on thee. Holy shit. Well, and then, you know, not only do they rape her on the body of her husband, whom they've just murdered, but then so they so so she can't tell anybody, they cut off her hands and they cut out her tongue because, you know, they got nothing better to do. Because what the fuck? Will and as 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 we've said before, if you read Titus Andronicus, those kids Chiron and Demetrius, they are Donnie Jr. and Eric. They really are. They really are the Trump boys. It's kind of amazing. Um, and then also in Titus Andronica, <laughs> Titus to get back at Tamara invites uh, Saturninus, the Emperor of Rome, and Tamara and Lavinia to a dinner party where he has baked a pie with the bodies of Chiron and Demetrius in it, and he feeds it to Tamara. And then and then he stabs his daughter Lavinia to death. And he he says to Tamara about her sons, he said, why, there they are, both baked in this pie, whereof their mother daintily hath fed, eating the flesh that she herself hath bred. Oh, my God. And then stabs her in the face. It's just. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's hard to take that play too seriously. And then what about Aaron getting buried in the earth up to his neck? It's just, yeah, at the very end of the play. Yeah. Um, so I think I only have one more fart joke left, believe oh, it or not. OK, good. But but I think th- this is the last fart joke that I have. However, it it's combined with piss. Oh, nice. Which nice. is very nice. Doubling up. I love that. Yeah. So in, this, in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Proteus, that, that same lovely guy we were talking about before, he really likes Sylvia, right? So he wants to give her a dog named Crab as a gift. But there's a problem with the dog because the dog farts. This is how it goes. Lance's servant says, I was sent to deliver the dog as a present to Mr. Sylvia from my master. Uh, the dog, 
essentially goes under the Duke's table. He had not been there, bless the mark, a pissing while. So he's pissing under the table, but all the chambers smelt him. That's when the dog farts. Out with the dog, says one. What cur is that, says another. Whip him out, says the third. Hang him up, says the Duke. I have been acquainted with the smell before, knew it was crab, and goes me to the fellow that whips the dogs. Friend, quoth I, you mean to whip the dog. I marry do I, quoth he. You do him the more wrong, quoth I. Twas I did the thing you wot of. So he's basically saying the dog didn't fart. It was me. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, Uh, Shakespeare. We get some farting and pissing in that particular speech. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And we're going to I think I think we'll end with syphilis. But before we go to syphilis, I have to talk about Coriolanus because, listen, you know, I'm all about getting it any way you can. But this is a really weird thing to happen in Coriolanus. So. Coriolanus, the titular character in the play, is one of Rome's most popular generals. He's like the most bloodthirsty. Uh, for a while. Right. <laughs> bravest, mo- most bloodthirsty warrior in the military. Um, after being driven from Rome in a political coup, he decides to show up at uh, Aufidius's house, who has spent the first three acts of the play trying to kill Coriolanus, right? He shows up at his house half naked to try to form an alliance. Now, the play states that Coriolanus is driven out of Rome in, quote, mean attire. So basically meaning the rags of a beggar. Now, they didn't wear underwear in ancient Rome, so Coriolanus free balls it over to Aufidius's <laughs> house. Commando and, style. That's right. And throws himself at the mercy of his sworn enemy. So this is what Aufidius responds. He says, quote, Know thou first I loved the maid I married, never man sighed truer breath. But that I see thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart than when I first my wedded mistress saw beside my threshold. Now, if you translate this into bro speak, right? He's basically saying, dude, I am totally into my wife and all, but looking at your really sick rockin' body, I am seriously hornier than I was when I had sex with my wife for the first time. Aufidius continues, thou hast beat me out 12 several times and i have nightly since dreamt of encounters twixt myself and me we have been down together in my sleep unbuckling helms fisting each other's throat and waked half dead with nothing so translated you've beaten me in combat like 12 times and every night afterward i had a raging wet dream about you and me getting on right fisting each other's quote throat <laughs> and afterwards fisting I woke each up, other right i woke up quote half dead post orgasm with nothing meaning that my boner was depleted covered in my own jizz then they vowed to attack Rome together, and they literally leave the stage hand in hand. What the fuck, Shakespeare? Come on, man. That's Come awesome. On. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What does that have to do with the play? It's so fucking weird. And people say Shakespeare is boring. Yeah. And then lastly, we need to talk about Shakespeare's preoccupation with syphilis. Yeah, some people actually think Shakespeare may have had syphilis. There are some references in the sonnets that sort of imply it. Yeah. Very hard to take, very hard to read the sonnets biographically, but 
some people think maybe he did. Yeah, and I have references to some of those, but I want to start with Troilus and Cressida. Now, um, I was reading that there was a, 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 someone was saying there was six lines only referring to venereal disease in the into all of the plays of Christopher Marlowe, but there are in Shakespeare, 55 lines in Measure for Measure, 61 lines in Troilus and Cressida, and 67 lines in Timon of Athens that allude to venereal disease. Okay. So his references to syphilis in his plays are very odd and often really misplaced. Leading Anthony Burgess famously wrote Clockwork Orange to characterize Shakespeare as having a gratuitous venereal obsession. <laughs> now, Shakespeare refers to syphilis in the plays as the pox, the malady of France, the infinite malady, the incurable bone ache. Yes, like a boner, the whore leprosy, and most oddly as the good year, which is a corruption of the French term gougere from gouge meaning prostitute. Now, Troilus and Cressida has been said to be a tragedy and a history and a black comedy. It has a dual plot line featuring a tragic love story and a political war drama. Um, but what you won't find in most um, summaries of Troilus and Cressida is that it's really a story that's part mystery and part cautionary tale about Pandarus's, one of the major characters, Syphilis. It opens and closes with references to venereal disease. During the very first scene, Troilus is lamenting to Pandarus about his desire for the beautiful Cressida. He describes his impatience to be with her through a series of metaphors about bread making. Now, almost all of these metaphors, including his desire for grinding, uh, anybody recognize that from modern day? And bolting can be interpreted as sexual innuendos. In fact, bolting was a particularly crude sexual innuendo at the time of Shakespeare's writing. So Pandarus encourages Troilus to be patient and warns him to be careful, else he, quote, may chance burn his lips. Now, that could be a veiled reference to venereal disease. But, Indeed. Uh, because it burns. Burning lip, burning lips. That's right. And it becomes even more likely when we discover later in the play that Pandarus himself has syphilis. In fact, the entire final speech of the play is a lament by Pandarus about his poor health. He describes a horrible aching in his bones, which is a common symptom of syphilis. He also says that he plans to ease his ailments by sweating or taking steam baths, which was a common treatment. That's right. A used remedy for syphilis during the 17th century. And if all of those hints weren't clear enough, he makes his condition quite clear when he promises to, quote, pass on his diseases to the prostitutes of his favorite brothels until the end of his days. Oh, my God. Charming. That is a really hard play, Troilus and Cressida. It is a really hard play, but that's not the only references to genital shankers in Shakespeare. I mean, embossed sores and as you like it, uh, the canker, as you were saying, in Sonnet 95 associated with vice and lascivious sport. Um, uh, there's many other references in Troilus and Cressida, including raw eyes, which refers to syphilitic episcleritis, bone ache, and lime kilns in the palm, which is like the populosquamous or the palmer rash of secondary syphilis, um, which are skin lesions consisting of red or purple, um, like lesions with scales. And they think that that might mean that both 
Macbeth and Lady Macbeth also have them because Lady Macbeth talks about out damn spot. And mm-hmm. that's what those secondary lesions looked like. Well, that would also, that would go somewhat, some, some length to explain why she never has another child. The, and him, right? Right, and, and him, sure. And all of the things that he goes through are symptoms of like third level syphilis, right? They usually begin 10 to 15 years after the initial infection. And I mean, come on, Macbeth was a soldier, right? Lots of soldiers get syphilis in the war, but you know, these symptoms are like memory loss, impaired concentration, irritability, mania, depression, psychosis. I mean, come on. It's he, plausible. He, he's seeing dead people. It's totally plausible. And daggers and all kinds of shit. That's right. Um, and you know, there are references to Lady Macbeth's infected brain, right? They say she has a mind diseased. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's plausible. I'm not sure I buy that, that they have syphilis, but I, could, I can see why people make that assumption. There's another reference to syphilis, a little more jocular in going back to all's well that ends well. Not, not, not uh, content with having an anal fistula in that play. Um, <laughs> there has to be a syphilis joke. At one point, Paroles, the, the, the comic soldier, is talking with Helena about virginity, and and he says, "Your date is better in your pie and your porridge than and than in your cheek, and your virginity, your old virginity, is like one of our French withered pears. It looks ill. It eats dryly. So, date the date is better in your pie. A, a date means penis, and pie obviously means vagina, as does porridge." Um, French withered pears, Lisanne was already saying that uh, syphilis was sometimes referred to as the French disease, and the withered pear clearly refers to a vagina. So your French withered pear is a syphilitic vagina. That's right. There's also a reference to syphilitic skin lesions and comedy of errors, right? They say a woman of dubious beauty and virtue has, quote, her nose all or embellished with rubies, carbuncles, sapphires, which is alluding to the syphilit of late benign syphilis, you know, which are like deep uh, nodules that vary from a pinhead to pea size and are brownish red in color. Mm, mm. Well, what's funnier than syphilis, man? There's nothing funnier than syphilis. And I think that's a really good place to end, actually. Well, before we end, I just one last what the fuck moment. There are endings of Shakespeare plays that are famously what the fuck, like the ending of Measure for Measure, where the Duke announces out of nowhere that he's going to marry Isabella, who, P.S., is is, is next door to being a nun. Right, and and doesn't say anything. Yeah, she spent the entire play trying to retain her virginity, and she famously says nothing for the rest of the play. How weird is that, guys? That's a huge WTF moment in Shakespeare. But I want to close by asking Lisa Ann to talk. My question for you is, what the fuck is up with the end of The Taming of the Shrew? You know... Having had to speak that monologue, I, 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 as I said to you at the time, I don't know how to reconcile that because if she's just, if well, they- Well, hold on. Let's, 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 some people may not know the end of Taming of the Shrew, right? You can, I mean, so the play basically is about, <laughs> well, the title says it all, unfortunately. Yep. So Petruchio, the fortune hunter, wants to get married to a rich woman he doesn't care about anything else so he gets set up with katharina manola who is quote unquote the shrew an ill-tempered misbehaving woman right doesn't want to get married has no interest in a relationship which is which is already a what the fuck situation right so he basically beats and starves her 
Literally. 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 He beats and starves her, quote unquote, for her own good, right? Uh, Until she finally is, quote unquote, tamed. And in the very last scene of the play, there's a sort of contest between three newly newly married men as to whose wife is the most obedient. And and Katharina, who is famous for being disobedient, like wins this contest with a speech about how women need to be subservient to men. And it goes on and on and on. Like a long speech. Yeah. So, So, you know, there's been conjecture that she and Petruchio have come to some sort of agreement and this is all bullshit, but that doesn't really serve the play, right? And it is, it's not supported by the text. That's That's right. So how, as an actor in the 21st century, do you speak these lines about how literally a woman should lay her hand under her husband's feet? How, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I think it's insoluble. And, you know, I think a lot of people want Shakespeare to be more progressive than he than, than the, the text will bear. I mean, the problem is he was a genius and obviously a a deep thinker among many other things and but he was a product of his time he was a man of his time and so you know when 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 petruchio in that play says of kate like at great length that she is his possession he has a long speech about how she belongs to him like anything that he uh, anything else that he owns including animals and furniture he's what petruchio i mean it's offensive as hell but he's really only speaking what was the law of the land that's right yeah, it's horrifying. So, I don't know. I mean, as an actor, you find a way to make whatever you have to speak work, but it's, you know, if I were ever given the opportunity to play Kate in a full production, I would really have to find something that connected me to that text. Yeah, if I were, I mean, I have I have been in that play as an actor. I've never, and, and fortunately, I only played Tranio, so I didn't have to deal with any of yeah, that other stuff. Yeah, and how would how would you play Petruchio? And oh, I don't know. I do, okay. honestly, I I don't know. And quite frankly, and I've thought about it a lot. If anybody ever asked me to direct that play, I'm not sure I would say yes. Yeah, I can understand Be- that because honestly, I don't I don't know how to solve the the central thing that's wrong in that play i mean there's a lot in that that play that's really funny and it's there's a lot of uh, there's a super abundant physical comedy in that play which and is the really word great. play is genius yeah between petruchio and Catherine. but the central problem is is so disturbing in the 21st century i'm really not i, I i'm not sure i would say yes yeah i agree that being said friends that's it for this episode we want to invite everyone to please uh visit our website www.thebardcastudick.com there are links there where you can donate to our favorite charities broadway cares equity fights aids or the actors fund or if you want to donate to us there's a link to our paypal account and also to our patreon.com page by all means subscribe we have our first patreon subscriber recently rosalind zukowski a shout out to her yay thank yay. you so and much also our first big donor jimmy Knoll of chicago thank yay. you so much yay um so come on people join the ranks you get special stuff you get recordings and visuals and stuff that nobody else gets 
We're also happy to say that we've had uh, a lot of activity on Apple recently. Many people have been leaving us five-star reviews and actual like written reviews. It helps us so much if you do that. So we, we encourage you to do that. Um, also look forward to our next live stream production coming fairly soon. Lisa Ann is going to be directing As You Like It. That's right. But in the meantime, you can go to our page on YouTube, The Bardcast You Dick, and check out our last live stream of the Scottish play. I'm going to do that for Ooh. Owen. Um, because the live stream that's on there was Friday night. And it is pretty terrific. So please check it out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Indeed. Uh, and uh, we'll be seeing you in a couple of weeks. What is our topic in two weeks, Lisa Ann? Uh, I think it's botanical Shakespeare. But you know, oh. guys, life is fluid. That's where we're <laughs> at. But who knows what's going to happen? Exactly. And remember, it's, it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you dick. dick. That wasn't nope. terrible. Nope. Wasn't terrible. Didn't get it. Ah, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> The preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2021, all rights reserved.